Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. As I think about all the things I remember learning from my teachers over the years, it's funny the things our brain chooses to remember, years or even decades later. I'm sure there have been countless moments over the years that were incredibly profound and valuable, but which have since been lost in some hidden corner of my brain or overwritten by some obscure Mario Kart shortcut that seemed vitally important at the time. Yet I have a particularly vivid memory of a lesson when I was 12, where my teacher asked me to conduct the piece I was working on while singing out loud. Of course, I was so self-conscious about singing in front of my teacher and trying so hard to conduct correctly that the exercise didn't really have the intended result. But I do remember that the idea behind this was for me to find a way to be more expressive, but in rhythm. Similarly, violinist Catherine Cho noted in her podcast episode that there was a time when she used to practice walking in different tempo markings as a way of embodying or internalizing the pulse more deeply. Likewise, horn player Julie Landsman, whose podcast episode also explored rhythm, encourages students to tap one's foot to help to feel the rhythm of a passage more in your body, rather than it remaining some abstract mental concept. And though I didn't have a ton of exposure to eurythmics or dalcros as a kid, I do remember taking part in a class or two at some point or another. The common theme in all of these, of course, is a link between movement and timing and rhythm. So is this really a thing? Like, is there something about moving our bodies that helps us to perceive time or rhythm more accurately? A pair of researchers recruited 66 participants to participate in a study on the perception of timing in musicians versus non-musicians. Half were percussionists, ranging in age from 17 to 42, who had been playing percussion instruments for an average of 13 years, with a range of 5 to 33 years. The other half were non-percussionists, ranging in age from 17 to 25. Most of them had had some exposure to music as kids, but none had any percussion training and weren't pursuing music as a career. The researchers put together a sequence of beats to test everyone's sense of timing. Essentially, it was a five-measure excerpt of beats in 4-4, four, four, 
with three complete measures followed by two measures where only the downbeat was audible. Something like this. Half of the time, the downbeat of measure five was placed perfectly in time. But the other half of the time, the downbeat came slightly late, either 75 milliseconds or 150 milliseconds late. Like so. Or alternately. The idea was to gauge whether the last note was in time or late. To see if moving physically would enhance the participant's timing perception, on half of the repetitions, the participants were asked to tap along to the beats with a drumstick on a drum pad. That was the movement condition. And on the other half of the repetitions, participants were asked to stay as still as possible. In other words, they were disqualified if researchers caught them bobbing their head or tapping their finger or foot or moving their body in some other way. That was the no movement condition. After each repetition, they were asked if the last downbeat was played in time or not in time, and then given some feedback on whether they were right or not. Before we look at the results, do you want to test yourself and see how you do? I put together a click track similar to the one that the researchers used, so you can totally try this out. In a moment, you'll hear four sets of five measure click tracks. The first quarter note in each 4-4 bar is a higher pitch than the other three beats to make it clear which is the downbeat. You'll hear three complete bars followed by two bars where you'll only hear the downbeat. The key beat to listen for is the downbeat of measure five, the very last tone you'll hear. The idea is to gauge whether you think it's perfectly on time or late. For this first round, be sure to hold still and not allow yourself to tap or move your head or body in any way. Here's clip number one. Take a moment to write down whether you think the last click was in time or late. And here's clip number two. And here's clip number three. And here's clip number four. Okay. So now in this next round, feel free to tap with your finger or bob your head or whatever feels natural to you. Here is clip number one. And clip number two. And here's clip number three. 
and clip number four. Ready to find out how you did? Okay, so in round one, the final downbeat of Metro 5 in clip one was on time. In the second clip, it was delayed by 150 milliseconds. In the third clip, it was on time. And in the fourth, it was delayed by 75 milliseconds. And in round two, the order was delayed by 150 milliseconds, on time, on time, and delayed by 75 milliseconds. Okay, ready to see if the researchers' findings were similar to your own experience? As you could probably guess, yes, both the percussionists and the non-percussionists performed better overall when they got to tap out the beats physically, compared to when they had to stay physically still and just keep time in their head. However, when the task got harder and the final beat was delayed by just 75 milliseconds, things started to diverge a bit, in that while the percussionists continued to do significantly better when tapping out the beats, moving physically didn't seem to help the non-percussionists all that much. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, maybe this is where percussionists' training is evident. Or maybe they just have better rhythm? Well, one of the more intriguing parts of these findings was what happened when participants had to gauge the timing of the final downbeat and were not allowed to move and tap out the beats. When asked to remain physically still and keep time purely in their head, there was no difference between the timing perception of the percussionists and non-percussionists. As in, the percussionists were no more accurate than the non-percussionists in their judgment of whether the final beat was in time or late when they had to remain physically still. The researchers note that this raises some interesting questions about the source of percussionists' rhythm superpowers. Like, are their physical movements an important part of how it is that they're able to keep time? And as an aside, in case you've ever gotten into a debate with us about your percussion buddies, yes, studies do suggest that percussionists in general may have a more highly attuned sense of timing and rhythm than other musicians. The main caveat here, of course, is that this study looked at perception of timing in the context of metronomic rhythm, which may be a different sort of thing than expressive rhythm, where you add rubato into the mix and there's a lot more wiggle room, yet there still remains a need to maintain an accurate and predictable sense of pulse. But all things considered, I do think it makes sense that our bodies would be an integral tool in keeping better time and playing with better rhythm. So whether it's quietly tapping your foot, wiggling a toe in your shoe, or being more mindful of your hand, arm, body movements when playing as it relates to how you shape a phrase, make a leap, or shift from one note to another, or whether it's accurately keeping time in a rest when playing an orchestral excerpt, or holding a long note and releasing it at exactly the right moment. I think the research suggests that there is something to be gained by keeping time not just in our heads, but with our bodies as well. Much like how my teacher, and Catherine Cho, Julie Lansman, and many other musicians have described doing in their own playing and practicing, and in their teaching too, much to the chagrin of their mortified, self-conscious teenage students in the short term, but everlasting gratitude maybe a decade or two later. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week. 